Well, good morning, church. It's, uh, it's good to be with you, and it's a, as John said, it's, a, it's great that uh, whether you're joining us here or whether you're joining us in the chapel or whether you're joining us online, uh, we do, we welcome you, and we thank you for being a part of what's going on here at Pleasant Valley. Well, we're in a series called How Now Shall We Live that Pastor Merle started a couple of weeks ago with the goal of helping us see how to, how to think, how to uh, act, how to respond, and how to uh, uh, live, really, as followers of Jesus in a world that can seem increasingly chaotic. And the foundational passage was found in 1 Chronicles 12.32, where the men of Issachar met to understand the times that they were living in and seeking wisdom to know what to do and how to live in response. Well, last week he gave us this very real and forthcoming message on how we should not live and how to live and practice civility. So if you'll remember, and this is important in light of today's topic as well, but last week uh, he uh, talked about being civil doesn't mean that we have to give up our Christian beliefs or our religious convictions. It doesn't mean that we don't make judgments and assessments about what is right, but it does mean that in order to practice and live out Christian civility, we will choose to give up some things, to give up our pride, our impatience, our destructive words, and our unrestrained anger. To summarize, practicing Christian civility will help us become people who are worth following as we follow Jesus. Well, Pastor Merle asked me to address today's topic because uh, over the time that I served in student ministry, I, uh, this, became, this issue became an increasingly challenging one that we're not just hearing about, but we're also dealing with firsthand. And so much of the research that uh, I'm going to present to you today, you can find that. And it's, it's meant for, it came from the, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, along with resources written by Preston Sprinkle, Rosaria Butterfield, Caleb Kaltenbach, Carl Truman, and Mark Yarhouse. And you can find all of those and a lot of other resources at pleasantvalley.info. So how now shall we live in an increasingly gender-fluid world? I mean, obviously, this topic presents plenty of landmines and opportunities for, uh, for what will be said to be taken in ways that might appear harsh to some and maybe over-affirming to others. But my goal here today is not necessarily to, uh, to resolve the complexities or the questions that follow, nor is it to communicate things that we will all agree on because, quite frankly, that's impossible, right? However, I want to do my best to make a big deal about Jesus, knowing that his love for us is deeper and wider than we can imagine, and because of that love, we can trust the Scriptures. Well, we live in a post-sexual revolution world where it's, it's hard to understand what's happening in regard to gender issues. I mean, this community that is referred to as the LGBTQ plus community. But today we're just gonna be talking about a portion of that, what the, the T represents. And so as the men of Issachar strive to understand the times, you and I need to understand and be knowledgeable about those as well. So there's no way that we're gonna be able to cover everything in the time that we have here, but there are a few terms that I think that need to be defined before we continue. Okay, the first one is transgender. Now, transgender is this umbrella term for the various ways in which some people experience incongruence between their biological sex 
and their gender, gender identity. So example, a transgender person often feels like they are trapped in the wrong body. Okay, the next term is gender dysphoria. And that's a, this is a fairly recent term, and it's used by the, the counseling and the medical profession to describe the level of, of distress or the intensity of distress that often comes with the incongruence a person, uh, a person might experience between their biological sex and their internal sense of their gender identity. And then here's kind of a, a little bit of a catch-all terms, but we have non-binary gender identities. Okay, these are identities that are other than male or female. And those could include gender queer, gender fluid, pangender, and gender non-conforming. These are used by people who don't identify as exclusively male or female or who reject the gender binary altogether. Now, even though they're lumped together, LGB is dealing with the sexual orientation or attraction, and the T is talking about transgender or trans for short. And this is dealing with gender orientation, and it has really nothing to do with sexual orientation or sexual attraction. This is about someone feeling trapped in the wrong body. Now, we don't necessarily know what causes these feelings because every one of these situations is very unique. But the intensity level of these feelings is, is described as overwhelming. So why does this matter to us here, right here in this room at Pleasant Valley? Well, we have many teachers that are part of the, of the Pleasant Valley family. And I know one specific teacher that is in middle school that has three students in their class that are in the process of transitioning, meaning they're going from the process, they're starting the process to move from male to female or, or vice versa. And if you were to ask, you know, get 10 random students from high school or middle school and ask them like, hey, do you know people that are, that are trans or presenting as, as being of the opposite gender? I would imagine nine out of 10 of them would say yes. So as a church family, recognize then that there are many families in our church that may be here today that are walking through this right now, and it's incredibly lonely for them. And if we're going to be for the family as a church, well, this is an area that all of us are needed to engage in completely. Because when it comes to LGBTQ+, maybe it doesn't make sense for you, and, and you, just, you just don't get it. Or maybe you and your family are longing for support and understanding. Maybe you feel like you're caught in the middle between two perspectives that are miles apart and has affected your relationships with friends and family. So how are we to live in a world where it seems like an increasing number of people are questioning if they are trans, if they're non-binary, if they're gender non-conforming, or they're gender neutral? How are we to live in this increasingly gender-fluid world? Well, my hope is that you'd walk away here from today with an appreciation of the complexity of this topic, that you walk away from here with biblical truth that you can be confident in, and that you walk away here with an exhortation or a challenge on how we should live from this point forward. Well, let me tell you about Brie. Uh, Brie was a girl, but felt from an early age uh, like a boy. So instead of tea parties and playing with dolls, she loved to play football and, and baseball. Bree can recall growing up in a church and being nurtured and taught that God loved her deeply. And as she got older, though, Bree struggled even more. It was, it was hard for her to fit in in her student ministry because as other girls spent this increasing amount of time thinking about makeup and boys and doing hair and all those kind of things, she was completely disinterested and disengaged. 
See, like most young people wrestling with her gender identity, she was wrestling alone. No one to trust, and no one seemed to care. But she began to sink into depression with thoughts of, of suicide all through middle school until in high school, she finally decided to talk to her pastor to get some help. And so she went to her pastor trying to find someone to listen to her and help her walk through this because she really wanted to, uh, to chase after Jesus. But after sharing her struggles, the pastor escorted her out of his office and out of the church and instructed her to never come back. She grew to hate Christians, especially pastors. And from that point forward, Bree was, uh, from that point forward, she, uh, she uh, completely abandoned the church and didn't come back. Well, Cole was a pastor's kid. It could not wait to leave the church uh, after graduating from high school because he had an unchosen desire to act, to behave, and to dress like a woman. But he had nobody he could talk to and no one to guide him. He took notice of the church's attitude towards LGBTQ people and how it made him feel ashamed and isolated. He developed a deep hatred for the hypocrisy of a church, seeing as they were full of grace, but having a hatred towards people with LGBTQ issues. So even though Cole left the church after high school, he couldn't get away from Christians. And so one person in particular invited him, hey, he would you share your story with me? I'd like to know more about you. And Cole, he didn't hold back. And he expected to feel condemned and judged, but instead, he was loved. He was told that God didn't hate him, and he was lovable by God and by others. And so eventually, Cole gave his life to Jesus, and it came about because he trusted a Christian who heard his deepest struggles and made the choice to walk with him and love him in the midst of all that. Cole is convinced that if he had been rejected then, he would have transitioned to a female and had nothing to do with the church. My friend Mark is a parent that volunteers at his church as a middle school leader. And he actually travels and does training on things like, like brain development and how we can better lead and understand students. Well, Mark's daughter began desiring to transition to a male in late high school. And as they attempted to walk and counsel with their daughter, they were forgotten by their church. Mark can remember a health professional asking him and his wife if they wanted a dead daughter or an alive son because their daughter was being driven to suicide by her gender dysphoria. Now, Mark wants the church absolutely to get this right because he had to process so much apart from his faith community. And the hardest part for him was grieving the loss of a daughter because in order to continue to have a relationship, he had to consider her as a man. Why do I share these stories? Because what has become a polarizing political agenda has made us forget that behind this issue stand real people. Real people. Real people struggling for, with what this means for them. People that could be sitting here beside you at church or in school or at work or even at your dinner table. And it seems that the more political and agenda-driven an issue becomes, the more it dehumanizes those people that are living with the issue. I mean, research done in 2017 shows that in the age of the 16 to 19 demographic, significant gender dysphoria was three times higher than in the overall demographic over all ages. Now, this issue hasn't taken God by surprise, though, because he's provided clarity since the beginning of time. 
So let's see how we shall live in a world of gender fluidity. And the first thing that we must do is have this unwavering view on what and who our ultimate authority is. I mean, if you haven't noticed lately, the human race has a really difficult time with fellow humans telling other humans what to do. We're dressed in this world that reeks of individual expression, and nothing or no one gets to tell us what to do completely. And so before we kind of jump into this, here's a, maybe a way of thinking about it. I mean, I love Legos. I love, you know, being able to be creative and, and build what you want. And there's always a Lego set that you get that you build whatever you see on the, co- on the cover. But then you get to kind of tear it down and build whatever you want, right? Well, if I were to give like, you know, 10 of you like a pile of Legos and say, hey, you can just create anything that you want. I mean, these are your Legos. You just kind of create what you want. And so you go about creating everything. And, and the first person would come up here with this creation that, that we didn't know what it was and say, hey, what, so what is this? And you say, well, it's a frog. And everybody else would look at it. That's not a frog. That's a fire truck. It's like, that would be ridiculous, right? Like, doesn't the person who created it get to tell you what it is and what its purpose is? Now, because Scripture is our ultimate guide and authority for life, Genesis 1 and 2 are critical, absolutely critical, for building a Christian worldview. Now, a worldview is simply the lens in which you look through the world in which you live. Now, everybody is looking through a lens. Therefore, everyone has a worldview. Now, to build a Christian worldview, the beginning of Scripture is essential to the foundation. So if we were going to start with the first book in Genesis, the fourth word in the book of Genesis tells you who this is all about and who is created. Because in the beginning, God. It's always been about him. It always will be about him. And we get to subject ourselves to the rules and the parameters in which he gives us. But let's specifically, let's jump down and look at, begin to look at verse 26 to 28. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So I think there are three things that this passage tells us really quickly that we need to, to, make, uh, that we need to be aware of. Okay, the first is that we're made in God's image. Okay, you and I were made in God's image. We're we're commanded also to rule over creation and to procreate. And we're created male and female. We're made in his image. We're commanded to rule over creation and to procreate. And we're created specifically and significantly and uniquely as male and female. And so in some ways, Uh, This passage in Genesis 1 is kind of like this broad overview on the creation of male and female. You and I are created male and female in the image of God. So what's important to note here is that one way we reflect God's image as male and female is just like the triune God displaying both otherness and sameness at the same time. Males and females are relational beings who are both other in their sex difference and same in their humanity. So how do we know this? 
Well, let's look at Genesis 2, where we get some more details, and I think some really, really important details. Looking at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, creature that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. Now, there's a phrase there that occurs in both verse 18 and verse 20. You see it here. It's this phrase, corresponding to him. Now, that phrase, corresponding to him, comes from a, uh, maybe a, a little bit of a complicated, kind of rare Hebrew word, okay? Konegdo is the Hebrew word used here, and it's actually a combination of two words, okay? Uh, kai means alike, and neged means opposite from. So the first word conveys the sameness that we talked about a moment ago. Eve is human, like Adam. The second word conveys the dissimilarity or opposite of. Eve is a female, unlike Adam. So Konegdo highlights Eve's sameness to Adam as a fellow human, yet it also highlights Eve's otherness or sexual difference from Adam. But Eve's sexual difference isn't only recognized, it's actually considered to be sacred. Verse 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Take from the man and brought her to the man. Okay, so God took one of Adam's ribs to make Eve. Now, the word for rib used here is salah, and it's hard to kind of convey the totality of what it means when we use the word rib because it refers to the side of a sacred piece of architecture, okay? Now, you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, Adam's body and now Eve's body are being compared to this sacred piece of architecture like a temple. So to not hold both Adam and Eve up as both uniquely sacred would be as if desecrating the temple. So in summarizing, we see that both Adam and Eve, they're both as embodied divine image bearers. They're both sacred creatures. And because Eve is formed from Adam's side, she too is a sacred, embodied, equal to Adam display of God's presence in a world where otherness and sameness are both put on display. God created male and female, and as created beings, you and I are subject to his parameters and purposes for the human race. Now, when we get back to the trans conversation, there are, there are two trends here that are, are pretty prevalent. And, and we borrow a term from Caleb Kaltenbach's book, Messy Truth, but uh, there's a, a gatekeeper, and this is a person that, that really doesn't seem to think or care about people, but instead they want to disprove everything. So every clickbait headline that they see on the internet, um, and then they use scare tactics and name-calling as an approach. Listen, how we present truth matters. How we present it matters. Because we dehumanize people when we make them agenda and politically driven. Think of it this way. 
Your biblical values do not have to change, nor should they. However, we can learn and grow. We can learn and grow in expanding our ability to hold space for those that have different values than we do. We can learn and grow in expanding our ability to hold space for those that have different values than we do. Now, the other approach is maybe called the the just love them approach. And without thinking that theology and and doctrine are important because uh, this trend believes that theology just kind of calluses the heart. But that's too far the other way, right? Because theology informs and defines our love. The challenge here is how you and I would define the word love, because in some ways we've let culture define the way we love someone is to let them do whatever they want or whatever feels right in the moment. But God isn't like this. Hebrews 12, 6 says that God disciplines those he loves. Now, if uh, my wife many times, you know, and husbands, you'll, you'll get this, right? You're, my wife will come out and say, hey, sweetheart, how do I look? And, and I... And if you're, if you're a good husband, you'll always say, you look fabulous, right? You look fabulous, amazing, okay? So if, if I could do that, but if my wife came out like all dressed up and ready to go, but she still had like curlers in her hair or whatever, and I said, hey, you look fabulous, honey, well, then I'm not really loving her, right? Because I'm gonna pay for it when she goes out with the rollers and comes, why didn't you tell me? See, there's been quite extensive research and writing done on this principle. And one example is the the well-known book, When Helping Hurts, that makes this definitive statement that compassion without critical thinking can move you to do things that make a person feel good in the short run, but cause harm in the long run. So where do we go from here? Well, I think there are three things to consider. The first is to understand that we all have some form of cultural gender bias. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me, let me maybe tell a story. So when my wife and I were in college, we were dating, and, and so we went out, on, uh, went out with my roommate Steve and his girlfriend. My roommate Steve was a football player at uh, Missouri State, and so we went out on the football field, and we we're just kind of throwing the football around, okay? And so we, were, we decided to kind of play this little two-on-two where Steve and I would be the quarterback and, and Tanya, his girlfriend, and Stacy would, you know, go, for, go out for a pass. And so Steve was going to throw and like went and did this like, you know, count the one Mississippi, two Mississippi before I could go rush. And as he throws the ball, I turn around and I see the most glorious sight I think I've ever seen. I remember this is when I fell in love with my wife because as the ball was going up to Tanya, she came in and leveled Tanya, knocked her out, much like the honey badger does for the Chiefs. Okay, now, in that moment, Stacy didn't fit the te- stereotype of a, of a college girl. Did that make her less feminine? No. You see, we have these boxes as a culture that we create for men and women to fit in. And when they don't, it can cause a lot of pressure both internally and externally. We have this women's night of worship coming up and there'll be a lot of women here and the experience will be incredible for them. But what about the woman who doesn't really like to sing and would rather go axe throwing? How how does she handle not fitting in and feeling left out? Or the man who would love to have a worship night and doesn't really care about axe throwing? Now, that's not meant in any way to minimize the experience of a women's night of worship or a guy's night throwing axes. However, 
we need to realize that everybody doesn't fit those stereotypes. And we can find it hard to feel welcomed at times. I mean, here's another example. Uh, today, when people do gender reveals, they use pink if it's going to be a girl and blue if it's going to be a boy. Well, 100 years ago, it was different because if it was a boy, it was dressed in pink and girls were dressed in blue because blue was considered the more dainty, paisley, girly type of color and pink was considered the more manly, masculine co color. I don't know what happened, but that was 100 years ago. So, so what I'm saying is like these things tend to change over time. See, the Bible's very clear and that it only allows for two sexed humans, male and female. But the Bible is also generous when it comes to cultural expressions of the male-female gender. King David was a warrior. He slayed Goliath, and he was a man after God's own heart. He was also a poet, and he played the harp, and he got pretty emotional at times. Men are allowed to feel emotions and to get emotional. I mean, if you want to watch me become this blubbering mess, just send me YouTube videos of kids getting their cochlear ear implants turned on. I mean, I'll just, I'll melt in a pool of, of whatever you would be melted in right there before you because, because I'm so moved by that because I know what it's like to not be able to hear. The women are allowed to play paintball, to allowed to race cars, and they're allowed to, to go smoke meat on the Traeger. Now, the Bible says that gender is something that you are, not just the way that you dress and not just the way that you behave. So here's a question, here's a question to consider. Have I allowed gender stereotypes to drive my view of myself or my view of other people? Have I allowed gender stereotypes, what I feel like a, a man or a woman should be or dress or act or do, have I allowed those, those um, stereotypes to drive my view of myself or my view of other people? The second thing is to understand that in spite of real stories in the trans community, there's an agenda driving our culture that is harmful. The culture would say that sex is only biological and gender is only psychological. And this sets up as this classic case in our society today of how polarization happens because we've been given a choice to be affirming or non-affirming when it comes to the LGBTQ community. And the result is this false narrative that, that says that LGBTQ people are loved by affirming individuals and organizations, and they're despised by non-affirming individuals and organizations. There's nothing that, that explains that deeply. The language doesn't allow for someone to accept a person but not agree with their choices or affirm their theology or approve of their convictions. In 2007, there was only one clinic in the United States that focused specifically on hormone therapy and gender reassignment surgery. Today in 2021, there are over 300. The Tavistock Center is the main gender clinic in the UK. They treated 51 children and teens dealing with gender dysphoria or identifying as trans in 2009. In 2016, that same clinic saw 1,766 children and teens, and in 2019, they saw 2,364. The increase was dramatic, especially among females, more than a 5,000% increase in 10 years. Researchers have documented similar upsurges in many Western countries, Sweden, the UK, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Canada, the United States. Now, on the other hand, other research that you don't hear much about 
which showed that anywhere between 65% on low end and 88% on the top end of young people will cease to have gender dysphoria after puberty has passed. Now, this isn't a new thing. In fact, around 218 AD, the, the Roman emperor Elagabalus wanted to be and believed that he was a woman. And to the point that he got married as a woman to his male slave Hierocles and dressed and presenting as the bride, and he continued to live out the rest of his life and his identity as a woman. So gender dysphoria has been part of the world for a long time. However, today, there is a social phenomenon going on that's called rapid onset gender dysphoria, okay? And here's what this is. It's the, it's the growing concern about adolescent and young adults suddenly and rapidly developing gender dysphoria after having no symptoms of gender dysphoria earlier in childhood. So while we don't have time to go really deep into this today, there are groups of young people, primarily young girls, that are influenced mostly on social media platforms to believe that they have gender dysphoria. And we're seeing whole groups of friends and communities all of a sudden tell parents that they want to take testosterone because they believe that they might be a man. In fact, our medical and counseling professions are even being influenced to prescribe hormone therapy or puberty blockers as a first step to help alleviate any suffering that the young person is going through. In some states, 15-year-olds can get hormone therapy and start the process of transitioning without parental consent, and they're encouraged and celebrated to do so. Parents are sometimes told, like my friend Mark, that there's this dramatic increase in suicide for those dealing with gender dysphoria, and that is why they need to start their kids on hormone therapy. The question is posted in this way, do you want, do you want would you really have a dead daughter or an alive son? Because, uh, in other words, if they don't start their child on this hormone therapy, they're going to lose them. I mean, what an anguished decision for a parent to have to make, right? Now, I'm not saying that deep and very real distress that is felt is not real because it is. We are in what some mental or what some health professionals describe as the worst mental health crisis in history. Now, whether that's true or not, it's undeniable that, that we are in a mental health crisis that is getting progressively worse. The amount of young people dealing with stress, anxiety, self-harm, and depression is rapidly increasing. In 2004, one in 10 adolescents dealt with those issues, and now it's one in five, and that's just what's reported. The actual number is probably much higher. We accept people because they have value. They're, value. they're fellow image bearers. And so here's something to think about. Our beliefs, our beliefs should never cause us to question someone's value. Our beliefs, my beliefs, should never cause me to question someone's value. So in Caleb Kaltenbach's book, Messy Truth, he talks extensively about how we can welcome others in community and, and what that means. Because people find and follow Jesus better in, in community versus isolation. And so one of the things that, that we must do better is in practicing biblical hospitality. See, it's a myth that you and I get to choose our friends. We don't. You don't get to choose your friends. You just naturally will drift and gravitate towards the people who accept you the most. And if that's true, then Christians should be the most accepting people on the planet. 
The LGBTQ community is known for loving and accepting people into their space really, really well. In Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, one of her core contentions is that we can and must do better in biblical hospitality and that the LGBTQ community does this way better than the church at large. We can make space for people to feel like they matter and have value, which allows them to find and follow Jesus. So let's, church, let's be willing to do anything, anything short of sin, to see people find and follow Jesus. Now, does this mean we sacrifice our biblical values and principles? Not at all. We hold biblical truth in the highest regard, which means we must do the same with the doctrine of grace. See, in God, there's no tension in grace and truth. But as humans, because of our inherent brokenness, our perspectives often are marred by a variety of things because of the fall. And that brokenness, this side of heaven, is still being made new. Therefore, we tend to experience tension in grace and truth instead of completeness. So we can be a gatekeeper of sorts on keeping our culture at arm's length, or we can be a person that simply loves others and embraces all that culture has to offer, or we can be a Jesus follower that recognizes the depth of our own sin and makes room for others by being a guide that walks with people to the cross of Christ where they themselves have been ambushed by grace. Jesus modeled this, right? I mean, with the woman at the well, Jesus makes space for someone to feel like they matter and they find and follow him as Messiah. Jesus makes space for the woman with the bleeding disorder in a crowd of people and after her healing, he calls her daughter and lets her go in peace. And Jesus makes room for the, the garrison demoniac. And after he was made well by Jesus, he gladly goes to tell everyone about it. See, this is the essence of the gospel. We don't have to clean up our sin to find Jesus. We can't. Jesus loves you unconditionally as you are, and he loves you far too much to leave you like he finds you. Jesus has done for us what we could never accomplish on our own. So can we be a church? Can we be a church that makes room for people to feel like they matter as they find and follow Jesus? Here's a question to consider. What am I willing to do to keep and build influence with, and the name go in the blank. What am I willing to do to keep and build influence with this person? Now, can I say something to the parents and the families that are walking with the child that's come out into the LGBTQ plus community? I am sorry for how you felt alone and shame at times. God sees you, he sees your family, and he sees your child, and he loves all of you deeply, and we do too. Because of Jesus, who embodied the most profound expression of that love, there is hope. Cling to him. Let trusted people join your journey to listen and embrace you. Know that we have specific resources to, to minister to you, and we love nothing more than to just be present with you. To the person here that's gripped with the tension that they're somehow trapped in the wrong body, please know that God sees you and he loves you 
and we do as well. We are not perfect, but we can walk with you as you put your hope in who is perfect, Jesus. We may not be able to fully understand, but we will commit to listen more fully. We don't know your pain, but we'll sit with your tears. You belong here. You belong here. Know that we are here for you in whatever way that we can be, and if we can help you with the counseling center or anything, we want to, to come alongside of you. Now, to all of our parents and grandparents, would you start the conversation on these things with your children? Uh, don't just have a talk. Don't just have a one-time talk. Start a dialogue, an ongoing dialogue. And our next-gen team would love to help you with that. So to all of us, to all of us as fellow followers of Jesus, how shall we now live? By being a people and a church that makes space for anybody and everybody to find and follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, you, you are the, you're the one that speaks order into what we would think is chaos. Issues such as this are very complex and confusing on, on so many levels, but we commit to trust in you and to trust in your word. We really do desire to be a people that make space for anybody and everybody to find and follow Jesus, but it's really messy sometimes. Would you help us step through the fear or the insecurity that might be holding us back from conversations that, that help others feel like they can belong? Would you minister and bring hope to the families and the people who are lonely? And would you bring hope to all of us that you are a really, really big God that will help us out as we go, help others find and follow you? And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, just a reminder, if this is your first time here, uh, John and Nick are back there at the back. They would love to meet you. And otherwise, we will see you next week as we continue with How Now Shall We Live? Thanks for being here.